I'm hoping you can hear me. I'm speaking to you from Toronto, Ontario, where it's a little bit cold. And welcome to Tumble Vision. It's a weekly salon-style podcast about how to connect and create a world that puts people at the center of everything, business, tech, and culture. And every week we explore different dimensions of tumbling with some of the most interesting and smart people we know out there creating this world. Tumbling, what is that? It is an old Yiddish word. Uh, there's a tumbler. It's an old job. It means to make noise. It's some, someone who was hired to entertain at a party or a wedding by getting everybody involved, not just by um, being watched, but by engaging everybody, encouraging people to dance and creating community. And so how do you collaborate in a networked age? And how do you run stuff when life isn't all command and control and sorted out? You tumble. That's why our show is here. And I'm your host along with uh, wonderful co-hosts, technologist guy, Kevin Marks. Hi there. And uh, the wonderful business innovation Tumblr, Deb Schultz. Hello, all. So uh, you guys are San Francisco? We're at the Internet Archive at the moment. We're actually about eight feet from um, the rack of servers that has our podcast on. So you're in the same location as your data. Yes. Well, not only are we in the same location as our data, we are in the same location as each other, which we actually never, ever done before. <laughs> Kevin and I have never been in the same place for our show. Heather, you and I were once. And for right. those who aren't familiar with the Internet Archive, it, it, it is what it says. And we can talk a little bit more about it later. But the coolest thing about it is that the Internet Archive is housed in an old church. So we are worshiping at the Church of Data and Technology tonight. Right. The, all the old Internet sites, where do they go when they aren't public anymore? The Internet Archive. And uh, our joining us tonight, our guest will go deeper into stuff with him tonight. We're really uh, happy to have him here. He's an old friend of all of ours. Jeff Jarvis, author Jeff Jarvis and blogger at Buzz Machine. Jeff, hey, so, hey, hey. so nice so nice to be having you on our show and not joining you on <laughs> Twig. I'm used to the reverse. Down um, from so, the cloud. So glad to have you here. I remember the first time... Um, I think I met you. We were like alter- alternating, disturbing the shit out of some conference in <laughs> San Jose, disabusing media, traditional media people of their notions. It was quite a fun. So uh, we're going to first go into our first segment where we hit some of those recent stories and get uh, get everyone's takes on them. And welcome to everybody in the chat room. Which we, if you join us live, we've got an incredibly smart group of people. Wonderful, Lynn Moo, Byers, Freeney, all kinds of people. We'd like to see. Please let us know if you're here, and um, we'd like to involve you someday. We'll have the technology to hear you. This week, let's see what's happened. Uh, well, more revolution, which seems to be, you know, becoming a daily occurrence. Kind of, sadly, out in the West, it's probably becoming humdrum, which is kind of sad. Certainly not for people living through it. And one of the more interesting pieces I saw this week uh, about it was from Alex Payne, one of Twitter's main technologist who's moving on to create Bank Simple, which is what he's working on now. Um, and I don't know if you read this piece, but Kevin, I'm, I'm sure you've known uh, Alex for a long time, but yes. he wrote what could almost be a mini credo for our show, Tumble Vision. Totally. Very well said. Yep. Yeah. And and he it's called, you know, or he has a couple main points. Technology is made of people. And, and Kevin, can you say why? Like the, so basically it's prompted by, he hears an NPR conversation with uh, Hillary Clinton where they're talking, or someone's working for Clinton, and they're talking about uh, tech and the role of tech and social media in, the, in, in many of the revolutions going on. And, 
I guess um, Alec Ross, who was a commenter, came out and said, technology itself is value neutral. It just depends on how a government chooses to use them. To which Alex was like, rah, I don't think so. Kevin, do you think that there are many technologists who feel the way Alex do and you do? Or is it unusual to feel like there's no way technology is value neutral? Um, it's often, you know, people often will say technology is value neutral is how you use it. And that's, that's sort of a, a defense mechanism against people abusing things you invent. Um, but, you know, technology in particular, technology comes from the Greek root meaning craft. It's all about um, making things to 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 um, improve your lives and share with us, and I think Alex Alex puts this well. And and the the, the point is that technology does need to have a value. And um, one of the, the speeches here today at um, the Personal Data Archiving Conference we heard from from Brian Fitzpatrick um, was talking about how. Uh, he was trying to justify what he was doing in instrumental terms rather than moral terms, which didn't strike a strong chord with the audience. Um, yeah, it, it's, it's good to know that someone has an instrumental interest in you as well as a moral interest, but you want to you want to hear that they have a moral interest too. And I think that that was that of you know, what he was talking about was interesting, but the way he was selling it was slightly odd. And I suspect he's used to speaking to different audiences. Yeah, my reaction to the post also, which is why I also went yeah when I saw the post go up, um, Heather, your post, which pointed me to Alex's, is. You know, this concept that we can separate that, te- that technology is this binary, absolute, neutral thing that isn't informed by the people who create it is um, hogwash. There you go. <laughs> hogwash. Hogwash. It just isn't. And that's, and that's okay. Um, but we need to be cognizant. If we, if we make the mistake of, of assuming that it's neutral, then we're, then we're, it's sort of, I can jump right ahead, you know, to the concept of privacy is dead. It's, it's, those people creating that technology to work in that way might think that privacy is dead, whatever X technology is. It's very dangerous, I think, to think of technology as completely neutral because um, then you absolve yourself of, of all parts of what you're creating, I think, to a certain degree. Right. I mean, but you've got to be, you've got to be careful of the, of the other half of it as well, yes. which is to Absolutely. construct technology that only um, enables the expression of one kind of value or one kind of model. I mean, and it's a balance. You need, you need to balance the, the two. And yes, you do need to say, yes, we're building this for, for good. But you also need to you know, be careful that you don't narrowly define that such that you limit other people from doing creative and interesting things with it. And that, that's often the... You know, the, the challenge of it. I've just been, uh, you know, annoyed and, and sort of amazed this week, the past few weeks, at the very, very binary nature. Well, I'm sure we'll get a lot more into this with Jeff. Um, the very binary nature of the revolution because of social media, the revolution because of people. It's like, why do we have to be, be this on, off, black, white, you know? And, you know, it goes back to when we were talking about Gladwell's original piece in The New Yorker. I, I do, I'm really constantly... Um, awestruck and amazed at how people aren't willing to live in the complexities of reality. <laughs> yeah, you, have, you, have the, you have the other angle, which is getting more itself brings up all the time, is right. well, in this sense, the tools are neutral and the bad guys can use them too. Right. Yes, absolutely. And that's true of every single tool we have in life from the telephone to the internet. But that doesn't make um, the tool less important. It doesn't... But- uh, mean that we don't have the opportunity to do great things with it and and start from that stand. I think it comes in great measure uh, to terms of how much faith you have in your fellow man and woman. 
But I think there's also, there are, you know, some technologies are inherently more democratizing and some are more centralizing. So, you know, so the invention of the printing press and the invention of the internet are inherently more decentralizing and democratizing, whereas the, the invention of broadcast television and radio are inherently more centralizing. And you can, you know, you can make a plausible argument that the, many of the dictatorships of the 20th century were made possible by the fact that they had control over means of communication from the center. Um, and it used to be when there was a revolution, the first thing they would, see, would seize was the radio station, the TV station, to, to change the official definition of truth that way. Um, and what we've seen with these um, recent ones is attempts to you know, reassert that old model where they cut off, the, cut off all Internet access um, and, and, say, and say, don't listen to other media, only listen to state TV, that will tell right. you the truth. And so right. they're harkening back to you know, the, right. the, the future Orwell warned of, um, when, when Orwell was writing 1984, he was working at the BBC as part of um, the British government's propaganda apparatus there. Um, and a lot of the Ministry of Information was based on extrapolating what he saw there as well as experiences from other totalitarian societies. I had a fascinating, in the, in the research for, for the book I'm working on called Public Parts about, about the value of publicness, I um, came across a couple of really interesting research projects. One is called the Making Publics Project, uh, started at McGill University, that argued that uh, disagreeing with Habermas that the public sphere didn't start in the 18th century, that we started to have the ability to make publics, many publics, before mm. that because of the printing mm. press and the stage and art and markets and sermons and all kinds of things. And so when we had that, um, I, you know, Habermas then came along and talked about the public sphere and then talked about it being bastardized by mass media. I think in a way Habermas bastardized this idea of many publics and we're returning to that today. Yes. That we all mm-hmm. have these tools that enable each of us to create a public if we find a public to salute us. Right. A public, and, uh, what was the last thing saying? If we find a public to what us? Salute us. Salute you, us. You can put, them, <laughs> yes. put the idea up the flagpole and don't we all find that, right? We put out a tweet, we put out a yeah. post. And, and sometimes they salute and sometimes they say, yawn. Well, you know, that is a perfect segue into the next sort of timely little issue to hit into, um, and I'll tell you why. So you're saying, Jeff, part of what's opening up a public is you throw out an idea, do people engage with it? We've also seen some stories this week, um, little posts by, most recently by Dave Weiner and Scoble about problems with South by Southwest, its lack of intimacy and people engaging. And, and it's funny, Jeff, because... Your exact comment you just made is almost how Deb, Kevin, and I met. It was Clay saying, oh, these people are engaging. We don't know why. And you're, I don't think it's just the idea. I think the idea is part of it or the question. It's, I think, we think anyway, it's actively tumbling it. Because sometimes you need to continue with it for a while or you need to set up the conditions that allow people to really engage in it and to understand it. Because sometimes it needs to be translated for people so that it you know, connects with them or you need to set up a space where they can really be with each other. Some things, I think, that, that meme really fast, like an individual notion, do just kind of spread. But they're not always the same thing as creating kind of public, a sense of public space or, around something. Do you, I, I don't know, you know, Deb, if you think that I'm, I'm kind of going too far with this, but I think it also wraps back into the, you know, concerns people have about South by getting kind of huge and people not being connected. Because, look, we have tons of panels where people throw up ideas of flagpoles, I don't know that that's enough to get a sense of people coming together and really wanting to dig into something. Or am I, am I just kind of being like a hammer with every, turning everything into a nail? No, I don't think you're turning everything into a nail. I think the, the issue around South by is a little bit more complex because it's like with every conference, once it gets really big, 
you know, people poo-poo it. And that, so in a sense, it is connected because how do you scale, you know, sort of really engaged, great, intimate, tumult spaces? Um, and I think, you know, when it comes to conferences like a South By, probably multiple stages and more of like a circus atmosphere might, you know, multiple rings might work better. And I, in a sense, I'm worried you know, about it. Deb, I'm worried I, I, yeah. because the, yeah. the, the advantage of South By is you can plop yourself at any point in the hall in the conference center and yep. you will see lots, you will see the tribe come by you. Yes. And now if we're, if we're going to turn these into tribal ghettos, I'm, I'm mm-hmm. concerned about that because I like the, it's just exactly what you said, Heather. It's, it's the serendipitous meeting that occurs. I give away fewer business cards at South by than any conference I go to because it's not Absolutely. a Absolutely. Right? It's about people seeing people. And if we're all, if we're off with the people we already know, I don't like that. Yeah, I think my, my, yeah, I agree with you. I wasn't saying that we need separate rings. I purposely used the circus metaphor. I think it, the, the problem with South by is a scale issue at this point, yes. and maybe the business is taking over. It's not about, I still think it's that wonderful emergent space. And something I wrestle with all the time thinking about is how do you keep these sort of intimate, tumbled spaces, right? Everyone always does the jump the shark when something gets big. So the beauty of a South by was always that the participants, we're the creators, I think. And when yes. you get to a certain size, that changes. And that's what's changing now. Well, um, the, to so- be fair, the reason it's changed is because the people who really were the core of South by built the social internet, right? We have Flickr and Twitter right. because literally of the South by community. And so these folks built, our peers built this stuff. And now every company, Ford has somebody right. called social media person and they're all at the conference. Right. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong or non-communal with those people, but they're all, they're less, you have more people who aren't building platforms. Maybe they're not right. And, they're not, they're not, they're not creators as much as their users. And it's, it's, you know, what is it? Careful. It, it's where, where, um, of our own success, right? Right. Well, I mean, the other, I mean the, the other point that I think maps this back to the Habermas thing as well is is that we now have semi-overlapping publics. It's actually easy to construct publics that aren't completely discrete, that have partial overlap. And that's one of the reasons that the Twitter works so well is that all of us are seeing a slightly different fragment of that. And right. the same, same with blogging. We all read slightly different subsets of, of blogs and don't necessarily follow every thread in the conversation because we wouldn't, you know, we couldn't. It wouldn't actually be possible to follow every, every thread in the conversation anymore. And there was a nice piece by Cory Doctorow in The Guardian today mm-hmm. um, where he was saying, you know, the answer to information overload is don't worry about it. If it's important, it'll come around again because someone would have repeated it. Um, and this, Which he, I, I and have an argument it, with on that. But, well, he, but he maps it back through like the series of different online text he's used from Usenet um, to email okay. to, um, to, to Twitter to, to the web to, you know, the, the point is in each case, um, you start out with this thing, it's small, it's comfortable, it's cozy, and then it suddenly everyone turns up, it gets too noisy, and you can't follow it all, so you oh. only follow a subset. Now, he does miss the tumbling point, which is um, if you have a tumbler there, you can, you can maintain that comfortable atmosphere as it scales and stop it overshooting into noise. Um, but he says you know, it, it is, there is still some resilience in that um, – it, you don't have to follow every message, um, but because people retweet things, repeat things, share the same link around in circles, um, you, you will see the, 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 the funny meme come by. Well, it's interesting. South by Southwest, I'm just going to post to the chat room now a link to this piece I wrote for Encyclopedia Britannica. I figured that this, this, this scaling overwhelming thing 
I first experienced when South by first started getting much bigger and Mm -hmm. the kind of so-called solution to it for me came because of my South by experience where I have, I, I, Jeff do it completely serendipitously. I make almost no meetings. I really try to flow with whoever's near me, kind of like traveling and follow what shows up. And part of that happened because I realized it had gotten too big for my friends that I knew to introduce me to new friends. It was going to have to just be who is literally sitting next to me. And that actually began a whole chain of things I started doing. I stopped filing anything on my computer. I started only searching. I mean, I started to change my behavior in general because I realized there's so much it's forcing me to let go of this thing I was doing that frankly, technology makes it so that you don't have to sort and, and range so much anymore. And I think we may get there with meetings as well. I mean, Foursquare is another app that, that really launched and made itself itself, by, which again, lets you be, which lets you be more emergent about who you're with, where, because of where you are and what's going. And the point really is that, that I'm making in this thing is that it's, um, you don't really need an anchor. You don't need to like, like, nail everything down when you have this information flow. You need to steer. You need like a rudder. So what that is, mm. is to internally know what it is that you want, which to me, frankly, is a much more important thing and a much more basic human skill that most of us are very weak at and is, is to me, the obsessiveness with the organizing everything externally is to avoid having to know what you want. The same thing happens in so-called panels, Dave Weiner's criticizing the form of the panel, which I actually right. totally agree with him. Mm-hmm. That's why I teach on presenting and I tumble these rooms. But I don't think South by has won that many tumblers, right? It doesn't, yeah. it doesn't, we try to grow more and encourage more, but it sort of picks just as who wants to put something up. We're all going to vote on it. It's crowdsourced that you can pick and stick up a, a panel, but it doesn't point. necessarily mean you're going to really manage conversation. People well, are Jeff, treating it as a way to broadcast. Yeah. Right. And Jeff, that's, that's an interesting point getting back to, I use the word scale very neutrally, but you know, um, it's very business-like, I know. Um, but you know, raise, everyone can raise a flagpole, but I think what happens when things come to a certain size is, you, you can raise that flagpole, but then when does it sort of become that, you know, process-driven, you know, influencer, personality, pimp, high school kind of popularity? Right, right. right. And, and I think what Dave Weiner goes after is that, you know, Dave held the first two blogger cons. Oh, yeah. That's and I tell this story uh, <laughs> often that, that I had a panel uh, for politics and blogs that I was running, and I said something to Dave about uh, my panel, and he properly jumped down my throat. Mm-hmm. He reacted to that. He said, it's not your panel. It's, you know what? It's not a panel at all. The room is the panel. Right. And and that changed my thinking about events. And ever since then, I love to play Oprah. And I run around rooms. And the goal is not to say it's your turn, it's your turn. The goal is not to say that the stars are up on the stage. The goal is to have a conversation with the smart people who are here. And as Dave says, the people who should be here are here. So right. The problem with something, you know, I, I think the problem that South by inevitably faces with size and popularity right. is that is that then they come up with rules. You know, you can be only one panel and that kind of stuff, and that's what they have to do. I think the whole conference business is ripe for incredible disruption, and to put the power not in the hands of the organizers, but and this is very Dave Weinerish, I think, to put it in the hands of the mm. participants. I, I, I'm going to differ with you a little bit, and here's why. As somebody who, who does, this is what I really do. Like I run these live rooms, and there's a way to do it. And, and part of the problem when you're doing it are people like Dave Weiner. Okay? So because 
because Dave is much more likely to speak than 95% of people in the room. And he's smart and he has a lot to say. But it's totally possible that oh, with oh, only Dave Weiner speaking, unless there's someone whose job it is to serve the conversation and not just whoever's no, no, no. going to be he, loudest he and that. talk. Uh, and, I, and, I'll, and I'll play that role right now by jumping in and interrupting. Good. Um, uh, no, no. Dave, that's why he still uh, believes in you, you have a moderator, but the moderator's role is not to play to – turns or leaders, the moderator's role is to serve the conversation and to serve the wisdom of the room. And so, no, you absolutely have that value add. But serving the conversation isn't just whoever wants to talk no, next. It's the value of the conversation. It's, yeah. it's the conversation right. actually gets somewhere, that it accomplishes right. something. Right, right, right. And, and to me, to try to create a kind of energy of connectedness in the room, because I find that's what serves people's likelihood of coming up with the best stuff. Kevin? Um, I think you know, you're right, Jeff, and that you know we've have had the the bar camp movement and the the unconference movements right. over the last few years, which have been very much designed around this model of okay, we won't try and you know organize this entire conference top down. We'll invite a bunch of people and let them sort of decide what they want to talk about at the time. <coughs> Part of the problem with South by is that you're asked to come up with a topic um, nine months before the conference comes out, right. um, which is a bit tricky in technology half the time. Um, so you end up saying um, some new things about this this technology that we don't know what they'll be yet. Um, whereas, um, and then those end up being sort of set in stone and batted back and forth a bit. Whereas, if you go to to um, the Internet Identity Workshop, for example, um, Kalia sits, sits you around in a circle, gets you to introduce yourselves, and then says, "Okay, what are we talking about? Bring something up, make suggestions. If three of you want to do the same thing, merge that into one session and make it overlap, rather than doing the parallel scheduling thing that the conferences do." where they say, oh, we'll have too many people in that room, therefore we'll schedule three things on the same topic at the same time to split them up. Yeah, the, the, to, to Kevin's point, I, I, I let it be said that I love unconferences and bar camps and all of that. But without, very often, and the fact that the, they have grown and you know the meme has gotten out there is people think they can just put up a whiteboard with a bunch of boxes and time slots and people put in topics and they, and they happen. And that's the equivalent of what we talk about with people think you can just throw up a website and everyone participates and get, and gets right. engaged. If you build there's it, they won't come. You still have to add. You still have yeah, to add the value of where it is. But and there's a skill and there's a real skill and a type of personality. And Kalia does a brilliant job at personal identity workshop. And all this stuff is based off of the original open space model. Um, but I think, you know, we're, um, we very often don't spend enough time on the things that you can't measure, right? Like the right. organic emergent stuff. And that, and so you end up with people thinking that you can just throw a bunch of people in the room and it'll work. And to Heather's point, she does this great job of bringing everyone into the room. The three of us have done real time crowdsourcing. So, uh, you know, blogging just, was the first step of participating in media. And now we need to go even further, right? This is essentially what I do. If you go to unpresenting.com, you'll see if you want to bring me, I'm teaching people how to do it because I think we need it so much of it. And we will at some point do a conference and I'll probably do a couple and believe me, we'll try to do it this way. It takes more work. Just running a bar camp. It, well, it takes quite a bit of work is less work than what we're talking about. You, it, it's a, it's a real skill set, and you have to put work into diversity of, uh, and I mean that in the broadest sense of the word, and who's there and how you deal with what's in the room to get to a more interesting place. Um, I think it's, I think it's going to, you know, especially as you see live streaming happen more online, more and more online, we're going to just see tons of it and ton, much more need, need for it. So let's, um, let's try to get 
uh, obviously I'm passionate about it. And I just, I posted a link here. We'll put it on the site of my notes through conversational mechanics, tips on how you can move something from presentational form to conversational form. There's a real, you know, these are things I've, I've been doing for 12 years, partially because it mostly because of South by Southwest, because the geek audience was responding to stuff I was doing on stage. And I was like, what if I didn't write all the jokes? How did if everyone was in it? So we've got to get going into uh, into Jeff's project here, but um, you can check out those links if you want to know more, and we can bring it up again. Uh, so Jeff, you mentioned your Uber project, uh, Public Parts, named lovingly after your favorite guy, Howard Stern's book. Well, at least an homage to his title. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Who who apparently is your pal now, which is kind of entertaining. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've been on the air a few times. I miss those. Damn, I'm going to have to go look them up, Jeff. Uh, well, pro- he's, he's not in public air anymore, speaking of public. I, yeah, right? He's on that serious thing. I tried, to convince, sure I, him to, uh, I tried to convince him to come on Twitter, and, and, and he didn't uh, listen to me, but then finally he did a few weeks ago. I and, noticed. Uh, he's, uh, <laughs> uh, he's doing amazing things there. He uh, I'm sure. gave a um, uh, kind of a Mystery Science Theater 3000 soundtrack side you know, back channel to his movie Public Parts, as he was watching it with uh, his girlfriend, his wife, uh, in his apartment. And it was really, you know, the King of All Media takes on Twitter with a great seriousness, as opposed to like a Jay Leno who just uses it to have some minion promote. So, a side view there, but, but Howard really is the proto-public person. Mm. So, so, Jeff, what's the essence of the project? Like, what's the, the reason you wanted to do it? I hear I hear so much talk about privacy, privacy, privacy these days and the fears around privacy. And I want to emphasize immediately that this is not arguing against privacy. I'm not arguing that privacy and publicness are binary. Uh, yes. One depends upon the other. We are all public and we are all private. But my fear is that in all this talk about privacy, if we ignore the benefits of publicness – when we make our decisions about what to make public and private and how to regulate our world and how to design applications and structures, that we can lose the benefits of publicness, the benefits of the connections that the Internet enables. And I find incredible value in that. I believe strongly that we are in a revolution um, equivalent to Gutenberg's. We have huge choices to make today about how to structure our world going forward. And so I wanted to sell the benefits of publicness, examine the benefits of publicness uh, at the same time that I examine the definitions of privacy. And by the way, it's very hard to define privacy. The relationship of privacy to technology, which fascinates me. The whole rest of the world knew this, but I didn't, that there was not a serious discussion of privacy as a legal right in the U.S. until 1890 as a result of advances in technology, the penny press and the Kodak camera. Makes sense. And uh, at many steps in history, including Gutenberg, uh, when the press came out, authors were afraid of having their their words made uh, broadly available under their names and permanent. Um, the, the, the camera, the, the miniature microphone, the video camera, recording, all these technologies led to fears about bad things could happen, which they could. And we need to manage around that. So the Internet is the greatest technology ever in that sense. And leads to these fears, and I think we're ignoring the opportunities. And so what I want to do is really point to those opportunities. And then finally, I think that in that process, when you consider what we've seen happen in China and Egypt and with the U.S. government and uh, other places, we, the people of the Internet, need to establish or at least discuss a set of principles about the Internet. 
And, I, and I, I'm inspired by John Perry Barlow's magnificently mm. over-the-top um, Declaration of Independence for Cyberspace, which he wrote in Davos in 1996. And, and I, I, I've been trying to get – I was trying to get Leo Laporte to get Barlow to do a dramatic reading of it, and he demurred. But I, I think we should do that. I tried to get Clay Shirky to do it, and he wouldn't do it. Um, maybe you were the great tumblers to do it. But it's a magnificent <laughs> document that says, stay out of our future past – it's our future, and that's great. But then I realized that when things like China and Google happened, we saw that Google was enforcing its principles. And though I am the certified Google fanboy, I wrote a damn book about it, I, even I don't want Google to be the ones to protect our future and our Internet and our principles. And the problem here is that we, the people of the Internet, haven't done it. And so that's where I'm going to end the book, is trying to suggest that we have that discussion uh, so that we know what we're protecting and we know why. It's a call to arms. In the end, yeah. yeah. Which, all of which surprised me. I just started really? off with this idea of, yeah, I did to an extent. I, I didn't think I'd be going into history and Gutenberg and Habermas, God help me. Um, <laughs> all right. Well, that I understand. Nearly as much You don't as spend I, enough time with Kevin or you would just yeah, think, exactly. of, course, of course it's about Habermas. <laughs> well, I, I just cut the hell out of Habermas in the book, in the manuscript today, because the editor couldn't take it. He couldn't bear it all. <laughs> if you have to have a director's cut. On the web. Um, so, so Jeff, you would like to see people online do the same thing Egyptians did in Tahrir, which is just show up and say, we demand that we get to have more of us out here? Well, you know, it's an interesting thing about Egypt. Uh, I, the woman who wrote the kind of definitive work on Gutenberg is named Elizabeth Eisenstein. And she's over 80 years old in Washington, and I got the privilege to talk to her. And at the end of our conversation, she, she threw out a line that, that I didn't really understand. I probably still don't. And In fact, Siva Vatnathian got a little mad at me because I, I put it in there without enough context. But she said that because printing was outlawed in much of the Arab world for three centuries after its invention, uh, and other reasons, the effect that Gutenberg had kind of jumped over some parts of the Arab world. And, and let me be very quick to say, she's not saying the Arab world is still the Middle Ages. She's not saying any of that. She just says the development was different. So what she says now is that they've kind of gone directly from the oral stage, the pre-Gutenberg stage, to what we have today. And what we have today is another Gutenberg. And so the tools, if you look at what Gutenberg did for Luther, is not um, that similar to what Facebook and Twitter are doing for Wal Ghanim from Google. That they are tools of publicness. They're tools that enable people to establish publics, to tell government that you are not the public even though you claim you are, we are, and to be able to stand up and gather together and take action. And that's all important, I think. Well, Jeff, does Floozy speak? <laughs> I don't know your other name, Floozy speak, wants to know, is it dangerous to go with a sort of we the people, the internet kind of process, given how easily you can sway or gain what, what this person right. is calling chatter it's, online? It is that, a good question. That's why we'll never have a vote. And we'll never have a structure. When, when, when Barlow came up with the Declaration of Independence, um, in my very American way, I thought, well, what's next? And that's a constitution. But I don't want that. I don't want us to have to create a set of laws. I certainly don't want governments to do that. And the next step beyond that is a Bill of Rights. That's what I originally called this. I think that's wrong, too. I think what we need is not a set of principles, but discussion about those principles. So that at some point, you know, even Hillary Clinton's, my first one is that we have a right to connect. And when Hillary Clinton spoke about the Internet more than a week ago, she talked about the freedom to connect. When Mubarak cut off – and the debate about that is, well, does that mean government should 
should connect you. Well, in Finland, yes. Mm. Finland says it's a right to connect. But even so in Egypt, to cut off the connection is the violation of a human right. Now, Well, did you see Clay's conversation with Alan Murray about this very topic? Clay said, Clay Shirky said, um, yeah, also like we're finding out that access to info isn't as important as access to communication, right? Like our conversation, which is what you're saying, it's a human right, but you can't, how do you enforce a human right? I mean, really? Right. I mean, legally speaking, you can't... How do you enforce any human right? Well, because I think you put up up pressure. The the, the notion of the principles I came to after thinking about the Sullivan principles and apartheid, and I don't mean to equate... uh, And maybe just spell out the Sullivan principles to people next to me. About to do that. I don't mean to equate, first off, I want to say, uh, watching YouTube videos in in Turkey with, um, you know, the horrors of apartheid. (laughs) But when... We, you know, there was there was, seemed to be no end to apartheid in South Africa. Reverend Sullivan in the U.S. set up a, a set of principles for how companies should operate there, and if they could not do those things, he said, "You should leave." And if you do not leave, we're going to make your life hell. And in fact, that's what happened. There were you know demonstrations to divest in these companies and so on. It put a, a, a leverage of pressure on, and that that had a huge impact on the ending of apartheid, the economic impact. And those principles live on as the key principles of corporate responsibility today. So all I'm suggesting is that we have nothing to point to. When when China violates the freedom of speech rights of its citizens, when Egypt cuts off the internet, when Turkey cuts off the internet, when the U.S. threatens to create a um, kill switch, when Google and internet conspire to create not the internet schminternet separation of landline and mobile, we, the people of the internet, broadly pointed, have nowhere to point to say, no, you're, you're wrong. You're doing something bad here. You're doing something evil here. What do you mean We're, you have nowhere to point? What do you mean? Yeah. I mean, I mean that, that I, show me show me the link that I can do to say, whoa, folks, you're wrong. You and I. Well, you could point back to the like the IETF specs and stuff, but yeah, know. but see, I, I think that doesn't speak to a political world and yeah. to a broader world and a media world. And and I think the, the, the couple things happen in our geeky world. Number one is we assume these principles; they are part of our DNA, and we know them. And number yes. two is that hackers tend to hack around things rather than confronting them. And I think we have to confront these things. We have to confront the Schminternet that... Well, you are saying we need our own Tahrir Square where we show up. I mean, I think the place we have to point, Jeff, is the place that is supposedly the source for so-called rights, right? You're Tony Comstock who's saying it's a 20th century notion. Uh, it's us. I mean, if the, if the idea is that the um, ability or something is you know, a human right, it's because we exist and we're here. So we point to ourselves. I don't right, think exactly. anyone like points so, so it's, it's, it's a it, Jeff's talking about a, a digital principles of a Horton here, the who, Horton here's a who nature, right? He's saying if you're going to translate it into the political world, you need, we've had this language of political rights of nation states with right. laws, Americans in particular are very attached to the notion of rights, individual rights. It's how the American constitutional structure is set up. Now that I'm in Canada, I'm having a little perspective on my home of 23 years. And, um, you know, do we, do we need, I mean, Right now, you need to go outside to point to it. But as you said, Jeff, hackers, right? And Kevin, I mean, hackers don't really care. Do they care within the Constitution? They'll tell you we're just going to make it available they anyway. They make up rules and, and make up their own small models. I mean, they'll the, say the code, point, is the, code is law, right? The quote, let's right. say. But, but the, I, mean, the, the, I mean, the point, I pointed back to my emergent aristocracy post from, God, eight years ago, um, where 
the, the thing is that we talk about these rebellions against aristocracies and that you're overthrowing a king and then you end up with another king. Um, and the thing is we've had these models that are all based around the assumption that only one person can speak at a time. Right. And you have to come up with rules Ooh. to decide who gets to speak. That's an important point. We and all it get sounds... to speak in parallel. That's the, and we can, we've got to decide which voices to listen to and how we spread that stuff back and forth. But that and it is goes back to that idea. Right, of pub, of multiple publics rather than one mm-hmm. public. Mm-hmm. When, when we talk about one public, hello, Dr. Habermas, uh, I think that's a bastardization of the, of the idea of multiple publics. It, 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 right. it, he, he, he decries mass media, but in essence, he too threw us into a mass with the idea of one public sphere. There is not one public sphere, especially now. The notion right. of borders is going to change. The notion of, of what public speech belong to is going to change. And um, I don't think we know where this goes yet, and it's very early. It's the year 1470 in this development. Right. Well, I mean, the, the, other, the other philosopher that I connect it with is um, Hayek's idea of the cosmos, which is this, this sense of emergence, and that there are, there are orders that you actually designed and construction and built, and there are these orders that are spontaneous and emerge from the actions of many people, and you couldn't actually add up all those actions and do it yourself, but by people interacting with each other at the edges, you see a larger um, sweep of stuff coming out. Um, and there's, you know... The, the, the sort of the small part of that is the idea of, of the market economy and the market price, which is the bit that got latched onto a lot. But if you actually think about the sense of lots of people trying stuff out and things emerging from that, that actually maps to the way languages evolve um, and, you know, and the way ideas emerge and spread and the, the idea of memes um, where people will say something and that idea will take off. Um, it's very much this sort of Lots of things happening in parallel, small bits part, and afterwards you try and find the, the pattern and say, who, who started that thing? Where did that come from? Right. And we need systems around that. You know, the fact that um, uh, I, I got mad at, at Jonathan Friedland in, in The Guardian, and we'll talk about this in a minute, but, but this idea that distraction is, is bad. And, and, you know, the question is the starting point of how much faith you have in your fellow man and woman and how intelligent you think we are. This idea that we're distracted to death by Twitter. Well, when the web started, when browsing started, didn't we all spend all day going aimlessly from link to link to site to site thinking, my God, I'll never get anything done again? And then very soon... And, and somehow the lights turned on and the right. economy's gone and down on the toilet. No, I'm just kidding. The GDP's well, but, yeah. but, but once again, <laughs> once again um, Jeff, the escape, the, the look for the rights is to us, the source of the rights, and the source of the responsibilities, again, is to us. The machine isn't going to do it for us. Right, exactly. And, 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 and I have faith in, in smart people that will happen. So when browsing came, we, we wasted a lot of time, and then we finally figured it out. And we fa- I found a market research I did that, that our searches became very directed, number one. Number two, we knew what we wanted. Number two, tools advanced, right? Yahoo in the early days created a directory. Google then created search. Brands just, you know, knew they had to be repositories of information. And we prioritized ourselves and we moved on. When, when, when the curmudgeons, uh, claim that, oh my God, the sky is falling, that is a statement of very little faith in, in mankind. And I think that's a problem. Uh, whereas I start, if I'm an internet triumphalist, what I really am is a humanist and starting with the beginning point of saying that I think my neighbors are actually smart. Right. Well, I don't know. How very un-American of you. Is it smart? Go ahead, Kevin. It's not so much that they're they're smart. They may be smart. They may be interesting. um, But between them, they can construct something that's more than the sum of the parts. Right, right. You don't don't have to – 
You don't have to pick one man and say, okay, we'll follow his ideas. Um, but you don't have, you, know, you can each pick different ones and follow them and see what comes out of that. And you'll end up with something more chaotic. Tony, you know, Tony was um, saying, how do you have rights when you don't have a, a single, um, you can't have rights in a world of multiple publics, is what Tony said in the, in the chat. And I think you can, but you can have a choice of, of jurisdictions in effect. You have a choice of different sets of rights and behaviors in different mm-hmm. places. And then they can compete in parallel and see which ones. You know, I'm, I'm going to argue we're going to move not so much to rights. This is sort of, I guess, my next project with is to relations. It's because it's the network is the thing that's unavoidable. It seems like you just get more networks, right? Like the thing that changed everything in Egypt and all these countries is networks of people, not an, just an abstract notion of yes. rights, is it? A- it's amen. Like we, so, so isn't it the relations themselves that we're learning or need to learn how to have better ones? And to me, not just that we all speak in parallel. I love that point, Kevin. Right. It's really profound. But that no one is learning. We have to learn to listen and see well, that's the key of, of, of how the tools operate. That's why this, you know, Malcolm Gladwell be damned. That's why social <laughs> tools mattered. You know, I, I, one of my epiphanies in watching Egypt and, and God, you know, we all learn so much just watching the Kurds mm-hmm. there and, and we're horrified now with Libya. But I realized that I had made an assumption that advances in digital democracy would come in the West because our democracy and our digital lives are, are more advanced. No. These advances would come where they are most needed. Right, Needed yes. in Egypt. And the, and the next assumption that right. Americans made, at least in the, in the form of our, of our former president, is that the advances would come from without. What's magnificent about Egypt is that they came from within. Absolutely. And to me, that's the true reflection of what the to- these tools are all about. Yes. And what they enable. And, you know, not to be a downer, because I don't mean to be a downer, but the other thing that's really interesting watching sort of the media talk about the Egyptian revolution and even what's now going on in Libya or across the West is, you know, we might not like what what, what, what democracy we get in Egypt, but it'll be that public's. Um, right, and that's and that's a policy question for the U.S. <laughs> the way I heard it put this week is, you know, do we now favor democracy over stability? Do we right. favor the people yeah. or governments? And that's a very hard choice to make, but it's one word. I I think it's a false question. I I think, don't like this. I don't like the stability versus stability question. That's what we've I think done. It's we've we've that's favored we've, yeah. we've favored mm-hmm. bad people, right? Because because was, we believed that it meant stability, but it wasn't right. stability. It was an attachment to fear. It was an attachment to yes. to fear. So basically, we've institutionalized fear because you know it. And you're going to stay at that level of fear, not because it's because I'm sure if you talk to people in Egypt, it wasn't that stable for people for the people had to live with it. We so, where you could be tortured in your own country, which is always going on there. How stable is that? Yeah, right. so, well, but it's, it's it's storing stuff up as well. It, it, it's it's like the sort of the black swan principle of the more you sort of shuffle the shuffle the anomalies under the carpet, the bigger they get, and then they come back and bite you. Um, and that's. Um, you know, that, that's sort of what you see is you say, okay, we assume if we keep doing this, this thing will be stable, but in, in practice, you're ignoring the, the growth of this disruption yeah. behind the scenes. Yeah. Deb, do you think there's ever stability in any situation? No, I, I agree. That's why I don't like the versus stability thing. There's yeah, I meant a, I suppose control. policy. I, I, I yeah, agree. Agree. Yeah, but no, but you're right. You're right to use that word, Jeff, because that's the word. That's, that's the, the word that's, they use. That's the word they use. Right. But it's, I mean, it's like, you know, it, it, I keep mapping back to the economics again, but the economic principle is the equilibrium principle where you say, well, there's one true market price and it's stable and it will be, be found over time because people will trade and they will have an equilibrium price. And that's true for a while until the equilibrium is disrupted um, and then you have a, a sudden step function. 
um, because you've moved to a different situation. And that, that's, that's, um, there was the, the article by, um, Zainef Tuneki about, um, can the leaders revolution stay leaderless? Um, mm-hmm. A couple mm-hmm. of weeks ago. Yeah, um, I think we, uh, I think we did something. Who, who, who posted pointed it. back to the um, um, Clay's blogs and power laws thing, which which I disputed at the time, because the, the point is, yes, of course, if you rank things in order, you find that things rank in order, um, but that doesn't <laughs> define a hierarchy. It just says some things are bigger. Uh, it defines that's, really, that's what you looked for. That's exactly it. which is but, the problem with. But also, the, you, you yeah. find you do find these power laws where you know. If you have a lot of um, very large ones, and then you have a few very large ones, a lot of very small ones, um, but the, the but then the leap of logic is, and therefore the small ones can never outweigh the large ones. Whereas actually, if you have a situation where there are these big disparities, you also have a situation that, where there are big sudden changes in those disparities. And if you actually look at any of these things, like pop charts, like the Technorati 100, and all, all those you know rankings of, of things, if you look at them, you know six months later they look completely different because suddenly someone else has, something else has come along. So you have this illusion of stability. You say, well, how could anything how could anything get to be bigger than MySpace? Um, and you know, or, or Friendster, and suddenly you find that that thing has gone, and um, because something else has come along, and that this sort of desire to see things as static and stable applies across um, you know all these different situations, and there's this sort of strange presumption that um, nothing can ever disrupt anything ever again, despite the disruptions we've all lived through. And I, I find this very bizarre every time people argue it. Right, and, well, and I think that goes back to Malcolm Gladwell. Is that is that what I the way I put it is that we atomize and then become molecules again, right? And and I forget uh, who it was who had the new view of, of evolution. You'll remind me in a second. I know you will, Kevin. Um, that it doesn't happen. For? It doesn't happen in a slow. Uh, Stephen, pro- Gould. Hmm? Stephen Gould. Thank Punctuation you. equilibrium. Yeah. See, I want to see Kevin against Watson. Me too. Oh, right. Uh, so, so, Watson so, can't tumble. I, I think uh, what you're saying, Kevin, is that our um, changes in society do not necessarily come in slow evolution. They come in sometimes violent bursts. They come in, in strong bonds being broken, and we feel very, um, uh, you know, rudderless. And, but then we create new bonds, and these tools allow us to do that. Um, yes. So, I mean, sort of the, the basic... So there's there's a couple of there's this sort of strange presumption that everything um, obeys the Gaussian distribution and everything will converge on the average, um, which is true for some kinds of things, not true for other kinds of things. But then once you realize, oh, that's not true for everything, there are these other distributions that look like long tail distributions, like power laws. Um, then they say, but that must be an iron law too, and therefore nothing can change there either. Right. Whereas actually in that case you're saying, no, these big black swans can come along and turn everything upside down far more often than you thought they could. Um, and though, you know, the, the two come hand in hand. It's, it's, if you've got a normal distribution of stuff, you don't have a black swan to disrupt it. If you have one of these power laws, the black swans can come along and turn it upside down. Yeah, agree. It's just a desire to look outside yourself for what you need to find inside yourself. I mean, it's just the oldest emotional human flaw. We all have it. And it, you never will find it. It's just you can't find it. It's not going to ever externally show up. But you can try and control everybody, hoping you'll get it. And well, to it me, happen. yeah, you're right. To me, one of the most interesting things that's going to be to follow over the next couple of years, I think, is, um, and it harks back to what you said at the beginning, Jeff, is how do nation states or individuals or people craft a democracy when they've never lived with it? 
So it's the equivalent of what you said earlier with, you know, we, we people of the internet who grew up sort of using these tools sort of understand the internet. And, and I, and, and that's not to say that I think that nobody can understand democracy and all that. I, I think anyone understands the concepts of democracy, whether they've lived in a democratic state or not. But ha- what does it end up looking, sm- smelling and feeling like in those new countries will be really interesting to see. Because well, another you know, question, Deb, is what could we do to? I mean, and, and, and oh, we're corporate; we're here to help. But I've been wondering. They may not trust us. They may not want us. They certainly may not need us. But what could yeah. we do to help? Yeah, because well, I would hate for them to repeat our mistakes. Here's the, th- <laughs> the thing to me that's really critical about and, and, and helping as opposed to like what has the U.S. been doing to quote unquote How about help advising so far. Yeah, the yeah. first thing you do when you want to help someone who needs help is you ask them. You don't need. tell them, you ask them, and then you listen. That would be really interesting. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking of uh, that great moment in Bowling for Columbine where you get to hear Marilyn Manson answer the question of, you know, what would you tell those kids, those kids who went in and shot up to school, shot themselves? He said, I wouldn't tell them anything. I would have asked them. Talk to me. I don't think, it, I mean, how can you know? what's right. better for someone else. You can't. First, you have yeah. to, that's what I was saying about information overload, the way to deal with it, not that I'm any pro, because I'm not always great at knowing what I want, but that's the thing to do. What is it you want to do at this moment? You don't really need to answer any other question. That's it. Right. So, well, sometimes you do need to plan ahead with your information, though. It's not always just living in the moment. It is. Tell me when you've ever lived in some moment other than the one we're in. Well, I'm saying in contexts that aren't personal, it may not just be living in the moment. Silence. Radio silence. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I feel, you know, you do plan ahead. If you're, Jeff is writing a book, he's not, he's living in the moment, but he's planning for the future. He's, you know, he's, he's, you're iterating. Yeah. But you're yeah. prepared for, you're prepared for surprises. You, you, yeah, you know, exactly. what, what every entrepreneur, when I teach entrepreneurial journalism, which we have a brand new program at CUNY. Just yeah, you should tell us about the program. Oh, and, and um, yeah, and somebody wants to know early on, you're, right after you tell us about the program, about your tips for somebody who's a young journalist, how you would ask them to suggest they apply tumbling to journalism. Right. So tell us about your program. Uh, real quickly, is that is that when I came to journalism school, we were taught to stay away from business. It was corrupting, dirty, filthy lucre. And now we have to find the ways to make it sustainable. So I'm teaching them to start businesses. And um, I realized when I was putting together the syllabus for the primary course I'm teaching, that what I really am teaching is disruption. And the students are going to pick a target for disruption and they're going to uh, uh, spend the first – two-thirds of the term trying to figure out how to disrupt this weak underbelly, you know, like New York Times classified real estate ads or something. And then they're going to turn around and they're going to act like the New York Times and try to figure out what to do about it. And whether you're on either side, it's that knowledge, that change, you know, in this in this notion of evolution not coming gradually but coming in bursts, what happens is, this goes back to Kevin's point, we lull ourselves into thinking that our current state is permanent. We've arrived. This is it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it obviously is not. And so then the black swan or the big surprise or the technology or whatever bites us in the ass and mm-hmm. we resist change. Now, that's where there's huge opportunity for my students is that they can look for those who are resisting change and they can be the kid in the garage, that the, the Craigslist in the crappy little office who changes the world. That's the opportunity we have now. That's the opportunity mm-hmm. they have now. And so, so that's the, what you really teach in entrepreneurship. 
So the I, I like the example of the Atlantic. I, I'm sure you've seen this, yes. this Jeff, where the Atlantic um, realized that as a weekly magazine they were being disrupted and said, okay, how do we do it to ourselves faster? Um, and set up themselves as a website that was a center of discussion and, and, and hired people like um, Tanahesi Coates and um, Megan McArdle. And, 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 and our very yeah. own Tony Comstock here in the chat room was guest blogging on uh, The Atlantic not long ago. That's right. That's right, Tony. Congrats. Right. And yeah. Justin Smith, who's the CEO of The Atlantic, is a really smart guy. He's the guy who launched The Week magazine in the U.S., um, somewhat unsung in that, and he's the one who said, we're going to disrupt ourselves. And that's exactly what every company should do. But Absolutely. None of, them, none of them in media does. Mm-hmm. With the exception, I think, of John, a guy named John Payton, who's now running Journal Register, putting digital first, print last, saying that out loud, really changing the structure of what he has. But if you look at what happened with TBD in Washington, which was the site started by the same owners as Politico to do local, they just fired the whole staff. Right. Right. And it's a bloody mess because the company had no cojones to invest in real change, and the TV station took over, and it became another disaster. What, we, what Jay Rosen and I talk about in newspapers is that constantly the print guys win, and right. the, we got to have the disruptors win. The print guys not is being disrupted. Is that inevitable? Is that an inevitable change? That the, I mean, do the print guys win because we, we you know, the generation hasn't, you, you know, we all on this, on, on this podcast grew up reading newspapers, but many haven't. So, um. I think, Deb, it's, 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 um, it need not be inevitable by all means. Okay. But it, it is for many reasons. And, uh, that's because of protection. Is that is that uh, institutions abhor change? Disruption is inevitably going to make companies today much smaller than they were. Right, uh, that's the big potentially thing. very profitable, but smaller. We're our structure is set up for size and growth. Uh, bottom line, I mean top line size, not bottom line. <laughs> and, um, and and so the big institutions probably find it all but impossible to make this change. But it isn't impossible. It can happen. And the Atlantic is you know one shining light of how you can. So just about just Temling specifically to answer the question of um, who is it? It's uh, Lin Mu. How is it that you think young journalists should learn how to do it, or what would you apply from it for them? Well, you know, I think the easiest answer to that is that is, is blogging uh, because it is a form of conversation. We have never, ever, ever been used to conversation in in journalism. You know, we decided when, when I listen when I was at the Daily News in New York or TV Guide. My view of the audience, I'll be honest, came from the fact that I got letters from people written in crayon all around the edges of the paper with gruel on it. And that's where I thought the public was. Why I wanted to serve them, I have no idea. Blogging and this whole world taught me an entirely different relationship with a public. And that's why I have this passion for this notion of, of the public and publics. Um, and so what we try to teach our students is to set up a to utterly reset the relationship with their public and to realize that it must be truly collaborative, that must often, the work does not start with the journalist, it starts with the public. And that, especially in the economics of journalism today and news and media today, that a great deal of the work will be done by the public because they just give a damn, they care. And, you know, the the marginal cost of a public sharing what it knows is now zero. So journalists have to ask where we add value. We can add value in lots of ways. We certainly still report. We have to vet things. We have to give context. But I think that one of the great new skills 
in this relationship that journalists have to have is to know how to teach journalism, how to help people do this and do this well. And that is an iterative process. That's a conversation. That's, that's just talking and listening to people and seeing what they need and stepping in at that moment and helping them do what they want to do. And do you think, go ahead. Does that inherently mean affecting the news? Because to me, if you're going to be talking about a situation and there's need, you know, people are saying, well, we need the actual gas or we need food or whatever it is that you're talking about. And you help start connecting people to each other, tumbling like, hey, this person is this. We're going to set up systems to let people do that. You become part of the story. I mean, oh, absolutely. That- That's always been always thus. It was our myth. It was the myth of objectivity, the myth that we were separated and above an audience. As Jay so, Rosen says. So is all, is all disruption we're living through now, you guys, really just one destruction after another of an idea that people are separate from one another? Hmm. Well, not just from one another. I think yeah. I think it, or like you're saying stories or from, what have you. Well, from organizations and institutions. The idea that that we were a mass. When Raymond Williams says there is no such thing as a mass, only ways to see us a mass. That, that's, the what idea, a, that's what Jay Rosen quoted on our show with him. He always <laughs> that's quotes, right. That that's 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 like the law that uh, that we all live under that we have to quote Clay Shirky once a day. Um, <laughs> Jay's personal laws that he quotes from Williams. Um, <laughs> That's great. That's so true. So Put that true. in the show notes. Uh, so, uh, but but also the idea that you know government is the country. That's what happened in in Egypt. That uh, media are the public um, uh, sphere, and that and that they know what we want, and that and that those kinds of, you know polls and surveys are one of the worst things to happen to public opinion. It, it, oh, it's God. reductive, right? And that idea that we were we are constantly reduced as a people, and that we can be described in one word descriptions, obviously red versus blue or gay versus straight or or things like that that aren't really informative at all, but our system of media and government and society are set up around those reductive uh, lumps of people, the lump and proletariat indeed yeah what they you- set up around um you know hard structures, you know, in the world that I do a lot of work with businesses, it's, it's trying to get them to understand a more or get thinking of the firm. Let's use the word, the firm, no matter what scale it is as more organic and emergent and open and having porous walls. It's where you get Chesborough coming up with open innovation and all these things. And just that, that construct, that post sort of industrial age construct, because what worked in the last century, you know, we needed process and, and silos and frames doesn't work today. Um, Rashad Tabakawala, who is the chief yep, strategist, publicist, but publicist, uh, said that uh, from my last research, and I just dragged it out again and quoted him again, that he turns around coasts on the firm, and, and of course the firm says the theory of the firm says that a firm exists when it is easier to do a function. Uh, it costs less to do a function inside than outside. And in the networked world, it becomes increasingly less expensive and easier to do the things outside in the ecosystem. Right. So, exactly. Um, so Jeff, so Hermes... being turned inside out. Yeah, exactly. Right. Hermes wants to know what you think of the journalism programmer notion that, that Jay Rosen or Dave Weiner... And, and frankly, I think Scott Rosenberg's have been doing stuff about that too. What do you think about that new idea? <laughs> I'm of mixed minds about that because, you know, I have some of my students who come and say, you should teach us to program. You should teach us to do flash because they want to make, you know, flashy mm-hmm. things. And I, or that's exactly what I say. I say no. Yeah. We should I teach say, you about data. We should teach you about, yeah, not flash. Yeah, well, that's true. But I think even then I don't think we'd turn you into a database programmer. 
I think we turn you into someone who knows the possibilities and right. that you become a, a good specker or a good writer of specs. That's not to say that you couldn't be a programmer. You couldn't be an Adrian Holavati who's an excellent journalist and programmer. It certainly can live in the same body. But if we tried to turn every journalist into that, I don't think it's going to work. And I don't think that's what a journalism school does. But I do think that they must know the possibilities and the opportunities. Yeah, the possibilities are the important thing. The, right. the understanding that as a journalist, you can craft a story in more than just sentences. That you can, you know, Amen. right, like that, That I mean, I've never been a formal journalist, so you tell me, Jeff. I mean, the concept of you had your, your sentence structure and your photo, right? That was it, those two things. Well, now today you can have the New York Times do a, a, a data visualization Twitter map of the Super Bowl, right? So they need to understand those possibilities to, to make their storytelling better. But, but Deb, it is, it is part of the, um, uh, what do I say, the culture and creed of journalism that we are all storytellers. And when I say, well, maybe right. not. Maybe, maybe a lot of the journalism isn't stories at all. Oh, people, okay. people want to shoot me. Well, they want to shoot me when I say well, that. Really? Well, I had a oh, great yeah. conversation with well, Simon it, Willison, um, who, who was at The Guardian doing um, data work there and is now yes. doing the Lanyard Startup. I had a great chat with him at um, the Arati Strata conference where he was talking about his, some of his time at The Guardian where he, you know, he was the one building the things and they'd find the journalist and they'd say, can we do this thing and do, do the collaborative back and forth bit where he'd build something and they'd do that. But the other thing he said was there were, there were journalists there who could find you information about anything by not doing Google searches but by calling people up and calling other people up and following that chain and extracting the information and then feeding it back to him in a form he could feed into these data models. And creating that loop was one of the most powerful things they did because exactly. they would say, okay, here's some public information. What can we see from that? And they say, well, if only we knew about X, Y, and Z. And the guy would go, hang on a minute. I'm going to go and call some sources and come back and say, okay, I found out the missing piece. We can join these back together again. So and as Andrew said... Right. So you, Andrew's referring to the kind of stuff Andrew Carvin's doing. I'm, I'm going to suggest this one thing. Tell me what you think yeah. of this, Jeff. More than storytelling, because this comes up a lot when I'm explaining the tumbling and I'm presenting stuff. Storytelling is pretty linear and it's sort of sacrosanct, right? Like yes. it was structure and, and, way, and it's, right. it's assumed as sort of the deep structure point. of life by people who like to tell stories. Now, I love telling stories, but I found when I started involving the so-called audience in my show – that it shifted from that to really more collective inquiry. And it seems to me, journalists, it's even more clearly what, Kevin, you were just describing. It's sort of, I'm trying to find this thing out. Now, how we try to find this thing out starts shifting. And, that's and why y'all I are love helping me. That's why I love what Andy Carvin has been doing. And if you are not following him, folks, A. Carvin. you got to follow him. you got to follow him. And, and, and he's going to be so, a guest in, a, in the coming well, week. Yeah, great. Uh, if, if a revolution isn't going on, in which case he'll be busy. Right. We, we um, keep having to reschedule. Exactly. But he, um, <laughs> because you know, Africa is going to change next month, by the way. Uh, well, guys. I, We're never going to uh, get him again. <laughs> Josh Marshall asked today whether Cameroon is next. Uh, one of my students is from Cameroon uh, in my mm-hmm. real class. What did they but, say? Uh, it said maybe it could be. Um, but what, 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 what excites me so much is that, is that on the one hand you have Murdoch who's trying to put old wine in the new cask of the iPod uh, mm-hmm. by creating the daily. On the other hand you have Andy Carvin who is inventing what I think is an entirely new form of news that mm-hmm. brings value where he's asking questions. He's giving caveats. He's finding the good people. He's vetting them. He's seeing who knows whom. He's, he's saying this he's isn't te- – 
firms. He's, this is he's doing what you're describing, Jeff. He's teaching Absolutely. journalism because I've ne- I see him so often when a tweet comes out, like here's a video about a, somebody in this square, this country, and he'll say, "Can we confirm? Who can can validate that this is gay?" Exactly. And it makes you it makes you aware of what the process of really understanding what something is is. And now I've started doing it in a lot of my tweets. When I pass stuff on, I'll say, "Is anyone?" Well, who's the source? Who can confirm this for sure that I'm not passing on bad, a bad, because it's happened sometimes that I've Or done you'll that. pick up the phone or the equivalent we have today. And, and, and if you have a link to somebody, ask them the question. Absolutely. Yeah, it's the question. Listen, we are getting to the end of our time. So just real quickly, if anybody has some tips for things you want to let people know about sites. So one is Andy Carvin. Follow him and see what he's doing. A Carvin on Twitter. Other uh, conferences or books beyond public parts and when it comes out, things you want to let people know? Anyone? Bueller? Kevin? Oh, that was that was anyone? Well, I Good. guess the next place that the three of us will all be at is South By, because <laughs> you go back to the beginning of our show. <laughs> so you can randomly find us in the hallways somewhere. And but we, are, uh, we may do something together, do you think? We may do something together. We're not quite sure yet, but we will let you all know. How's that? How's that for non-confirmation? It may just be turn up this pub at 10 o'clock. Yeah, we may have to be privately doing it. I'm going to – Kevin, do – Deb, you have a session on Miss Manners, right? I do. I have have a session called um, Dear Miss Manners WTF Social Media Um, (laughs) because I am forever – you know, we need – just like Jeff is talking about in the public sphere, we need a new – set of principles. I believe we need a new social contract around a lot of these tools and what is proper and not proper and what works and what doesn't. And that doesn't mean like what's good and bad. It just means I don't know how Jeff likes to be communicated with or how to design tools that work for us. So that's it. And I will have a session on privacy and publicness and my penis. Nice. <laughs> I'm going to be in a conversation with Melissa Jira. I'll put together with her on oversharing that Jeff has agreed to join us in. Well, we will hear about Jeff's penis and my miscarriage, the battling of the reproductive organs and what the public sphere had to say about them. <laughs> and the, the one that I'm speaking at is um, federating social networks with um, Evan Prodromo and how we can build standards so we can actually move stuff between from place to place and without it getting locked into a single um, silo, which is nice to the stuff we've been doing here, talking about here today as well. So maybe we should just say one night. We should pick one before it's out, but we'll let everyone know. We'll go to the Driscoll. We'll have a little like ad hoc tumbling. We'll try to connect, and any Tumble Vision folks want to show up, yeah. that'll be great. We'll we put should it take a quiet home. corner of the Driscoll. <laughs> yeah, that's a nice, quiet, quiet place. Um, any other? No, Jeff. When can we expect your book? Yeah, yeah October ish. Oh, October ish. Cool. But you've just taken away an hour of my editing. I've enjoyed it immensely. Uh, I've got to edit. You know what? Good luck. Uh, better Jewish mothers than you have made us feel guilty over smaller. <laughs> I want to just point people to this great post of Matt Mullenwigs this week. Oh, Matt, um, have post? And it's a really – it's a substantial blog post. It's a, it took me back. I, you guys just put it in the chat room called 1.0 is the loneliest number. And it's a really interesting take on Apple's willingness to put out um, stuff that isn't finished and why he thinks that's so smart. And it goes into some detail. One of the little bits he has in there that I think you guys will like is usage is like oxygen for ideas. Uh, and I, I right. think it's just really nice. And um, 
and I'm he not gives sure you if some I nice think of Apple is iterating, but I guess they do. If he talks about the first iPhone and all the crap yeah. they took from the hardcore coders about what was wrong, what wasn't finished, and how he thought, you know, you know they had like the three G S somewhere almost done, but they put this thing out, they couldn't copy and paste and why the value of that. The value of having it really be with people. Um, so obviously everything we're doing, Jeff, is like the influence of software people to me or, or right. technologists. I mean, there's no question it's had a massive ma- – I came to Silicon Valley wanting to – thought I wanted to make films. When I first saw the internet, I thought this is where they're going to go. I want to be part of that. I don't like that only five guys in Hollywood control this after having worked there. But um, all of these people really affected to me even what I thought about why we were telling stories in the first place. And what they should look like. So anyway, I just want to thank people like Matt and Kevin and people actually make you know technology because they really have changed completely my sense of the world. I want to thank everybody who's uh, been out here to an amazing group of people. A lot of new folks, um, uh, Jeff Smith and Nikki S and uh, Tom and all your guys are your your fun. And uh, we'll hope to see you next week. We've got Juliet Powell. Is that right? Yes. Author of 33 million people in the room. We've got some other great guests coming up in future weeks. Anybody you guys want to suggest, um, you know, let us know. I've got one more session at South by on collaboration and indie success with former Tumble Vision guest uh, Allie Willis, who's a true genius. And really, if you're South by Southwest, please come and meet her. I will be tumbling the session. Um, and Kenyatta Cheese, the producer of Rocket Boom, former producer of Know Your Meme and Rocket Boom. So, I hope to see you all there. Anything else you guys want to mention before we head on out tonight? No, we're good. We can just, chat more. just thank you for having me on. It was great. Oh, listen, Jeff Jarvis, thank you for coming and taking time away from your editing. Thank your editor for us. And we look forward to your, your book will be great. And I'm sure it'll be, you'll let people change it, do whatever they're going to do to it. <laughs> Rock on. So we'll be back next week. This has been episode 54. A great conversation with Jeff Jarvis, reinventing the media for the public. Thanks, everyone. We'll see you next week. Good night, people.